1: The great thing about diversity is that when you learn from people that are not like you, you get a more full picture of the human
2: experience. Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to The Church Lobby, conversations on faith and ministry. My guest in this episode is Brady Shearer, and we're going to talk about 10 surprising stats that prove that church size matters. Brady works with Pro Church Tools, and we're going to talk about some of the technical aspects that he's very good at by the end of this episode. But the reason I have him on is because I read a Twitter feed that he wrote, that summarized a report that I was familiar with about church trends, especially as they relate to church size. So in this conversation, we're going to cover a wide variety of topics, including how stats don't tell you a church's story, but they can help you see things that you might otherwise not pay attention to. Also, there's good news about racial, age, and ethnic diversity in churches over the last 20 years. Real positive stuff that you're going to really be delighted to hear. Also, there are some huge shifts recently, like very, very recently, about how social media promotes content and understanding this can be a huge benefit to you and to your church. And finally, we're going to talk about the fact that we are currently undergoing the biggest communication shift in the last 500 years. All of that in our conversation coming up with Brady Shearer. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Well, welcome, Brady. It is good to have you on the podcast today.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Carl. Pleased to be here.
2: We came to each other, or I came to you and to your content in a way that I've done with a couple other guests before through Twitter. And I know Twitter is just this massive dumpster fire. It always has been. But lately, with the change of ownership and with... I don't even know how to categorize it, but it just seems to be just this very strange free-for-all place online that you never know what you're going to get. But it's also this place where you do find like content that's different than other stuff and even meet people that you never would have met before. So you put something out there a while ago, uh, and it was based on a report that I had read from the Faith Communities Today report. And uh, the reason I had read it, and maybe I assume you had read it, is it had an awful lot to do about church size. So you put this idea out there, 10 Surprising Statistics That Prove Church Size Matters. First of all, what brought you to that, and why did you have such an interest in putting that out on Twitter for everybody?
1: I think what interested me about this specific uh, research initiative is that it's the largest national survey ever of congregations conducted in the U.S., and it spanned multiple decades. So it goes back tracking trends starting in 2000, and then it got published in 2020. And so typically, data is uh, not all the same. And uh, research is not all the same. And so understanding the methodology behind the figures that we cite is always super important. Anytime we're talking about church, it's never going to be as empirical as something like uh, certain sciences, uh, because even as I just described, this was a survey of religious congregations. And so, you know, we can't truly quantify life change or the existential matters of church and faith, uh, but what we can do is track things over time and see how churches are, you know, even self-reporting changes within their own ministries over that time. And so it was quite extensive, uh, about as extensive as they come in our specific space. And it it touched so many different things, Uh, church size, giving, ethnicity, volunteer rate, different generations and ages like every part of the makeup of church it seemed to cover and so that's what initially drew me to it and i will say if anyone wants to look at it this is available freely online you can search faith communities today and access it it's a, it's a public url and you can see all the research
2: yourself it's great Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes for everybody as well, because it really is important. Like you said, it's very thorough. It it goes in very deep. As I was reading it and reading your Twitter stream about it, the podcast is called The Church Lobby, because I like the idea that The Church Lobby is often where we have, quite honestly, the the most honest conversations. And sometimes those honest conversations go badly. Uh, (laughs) But this kind of feels like, I, I read this and I thought, you know, this is kind of like, okay if Brady and I were hanging out at the same, going to the same church pastors conference or church leaders conference and happened to meet in the lobby and said, hi, I'm Brady. Hi, I'm Carl. Hey, what you been doing lately. And you said, man, I just read this report. And I went, Oh, I read that too. Let's have a conversation about this report that both of us just read and it kind of fascinated us. So that's kind of my premise for how we're going to look at this today. But so you took this very, very extensive, and as you said, very thorough multi-decadal report. And you you came to 10 surprising statistics about church size. I've gone through your, your Twitter thread here, and let's just go through them piece by piece. The first four actually have to do with all kind of within a common f- frame of giving and volunteering. So let me read the four, and then let's break these four down. Number one, the larger a congregation gets and the faster it grows, the greater the decline in giving per person. Two, the bigger a church gets, the less willing people are to volunteer. So that's the downside of the big. As it gets bigger, less giving per person and less volunteering per person. Three and four, on the flip side, the smallest congregations, those with worship attendance of 100 or less, gave the most money per person. And number four, the smallest churches also had the congregations that were most likely to volunteer. So you put those four together. The bigger the church gets, the less per capita giving and volunteering. As the church stays small, and let's assume these are healthy churches, you've got greater volunteering and greater giving. First of all, have you seen that to be true in your experience, and what do you think is behind it?
1: I think what's really useful about data like this is understanding the tendencies of different church sizes. Uh, you know, I think what we all intuitively know, serving in church and, and going to church ourselves, is that like different groups of different sizes tend to have uh, different characteristics. And I think that this report is basically drawing that out. And I don't think that's surprising. And I think what makes it useful is looking at the church that you're serving in and understanding your own size and wondering, okay, based on the size of church that we are, it's likely that we're going to have these types of characteristics for the better. And it's likely that we're going to have these types of characteristics for the good. And then what becomes really interesting is trying to pull apart like why. And I said at the end of this Twitter thread, you know, I'm here to basically present this data and I'm not here to provide too much color commentary. And I'm curious what you think. And so like, let's take that first data point, which is the larger a congregation gets and the faster it grows the greater the decline in giving per person. And, and similarly, the greater the, cl- uh, the decline in volunteering per person. So proportionally, the larger your church is, the fewer percentage of people are giving and volunteering. Well, what is that? I mean, the charitable reading would be, okay, our church is large. It's because we're reaching so many unchurched people. And the byproduct of that is that not as many are getting involved with giving and volunteering because it's it's a foreign thing. Like They're not used to that. And, and that's actually a good thing. The not so charitable reading would be, Ah, that's because of bystander syndrome. You know, there's that many people. I'm just showing up. I'm leaving. I'm consuming this amazing experience. The larger a church is, typically, the the more extravagant the experience becomes. I can slip in. I can slip out. I don't really have to actually interact with people. Church lobby, eh, I'm not even staying. I got to hit lunch after this. And and that's kind of the not-so-charitable reading. And so the question becomes, for your specific context... Which one is it? Or which percentage of those things is it? Or is it, you know, a totally different thing altogether? And, and and that's why I think this becomes really useful. This data can be really useful in our individual context, maybe less useful in kind of like broad strokes and saying all small churches are like this or almost all small right. churches are like this. The only danger I think and kind of like, caveat i would make and say hey try not to do this is because we saw this a lot in the comments um whether it was instagram or twitter wherever we posted this data was well not my church you know hashtag not my church people kind of like being reactive and saying like oh this is a negative thing i just want you to know my church is different and we do this a lot with uh with data or with uh, anecdotal evidence we will find outliers we will find stories to basically prove what we want to be true and that's something that we are all prone to do. And I think the best thing we can do with data like this is like, okay, across the states, and, and hey, look, I'm Canadian, you know, Carl, Canadian background, you know, not every country is going to have this. I think outside of America, congregations are smaller, almost always. And so you might not see as much disparity between the large and bigger churches, because you know, a big church here in Canada might be 2000. And that might be like, oh, not big, but not crazy big in maybe the right. states. And so just like pushing back against the impulse to be like, well, not my church. This is an outlier Write off this data. I don't like what it says. And truly look into "Hmm, what characteristics that are being presented here might be true in our church or what's the pull in our church? Because if you understand like where the pull is towards and that, hey, by default, we're going to kind of creep towards this negative thing or creep towards this positive thing. Well, that means we understand our strengths and we're aware of our weaknesses. And now we can kind of like make changes
2: to uh, fortifying both. I think that's huge. I think both everything you're saying there I track with. First of all, this whole idea of no to us is something we've got to avoid because we're really quick to make ourselves every time we're the exception to the rule, especially if the rule is a negative rule. <laughs> but instead, secondly, the reason they assemble this is because there is helpful data in this. And yes, everywhere you go, every region of the country will be different. Different countries will be different. We understand all that, but this still gives us a baseline of research that is valid, that gives us some understanding and to to start asking ourselves, how does our church track with that? What do we understand about that? And if that's the case, if in a larger church, we're likely to lean towards less volunteering and likely to lean towards less per capita giving, why is that? And then how can we as a healthy big church counterbalance that to increase the giving, to increase the volunteerism? And then in the small church, not to be self-satisfied that, well, we're just better because small churches aren't. And by the way, Folks, we are going to get to a couple of the notes from the report and in Brady's Twitter feed where we see the strengths of the big as opposed to the weaknesses of the small. This is not a big church slam podcast. That's not what's happening here. There's positives and negatives on both sides. But there is stuff definitely to learn. My my guess, it's a guess from a lot of experience and a lot of conversations so it's an educated guess. My guess is between your positive and negative reads about why that happens at big churches, I think you hinted at this. I think in pretty much every church, you're not going to have one or the other. You're going to have a little mix of both. And so the burden is to move us towards the positive, that which is, hey, because we're bringing in new folks and because new folks don't give yet and don't volunteer yet, as opposed to, oh, all those big churches are just a place where everybody wants to be anonymous. I think in every big church, because it's big, there are some people who will want to choose large because they can be anonymous. And healthy big churches know this, so they pull back against it. And if a church is especially fast growing, hopefully that growth is coming from conversion. My guess is there's a mix of both. Has that been your experience?
1: Oh, there's definitely a mix, you know, nothing's a a binary or like this really clean dichotomy like that. But I do think understanding kind of like where the church size is likely to creep is really useful for influencing our ministries and, and how we talk about things at church, you know, even just something as simple as doing announcements and things like that. You know, if you are a smaller church, maybe you don't need to color that language with, Things like, hey, you know, we want you to be involved. We don't want you to be anonymous. Like, just show up and, and leave because maybe that's really less likely in a church of hundred or fewer. But then, in a, in a much larger church, that's where you might want to include more language uh like that. If you're a smaller yeah. church, maybe the emphasis needs to be more on, hey, we got to have a willingness to change. You know, we need to be willing to kind of get out of our comfort and the the cycle of doing things how we always do them because. Yeah, it's great for us, but is that great for someone coming in for the first time? And so understanding the unique challenges that you face based on your size, uh, I find this valuable, uh, this data so valuable in that respect, because it lets us kind of get outside of our individual context. Sometimes we're so close to the ministry that we're doing on a day-by-day basis and the problems that we have to solve today and the email inbox and the texts and all that, that we can become not so aware of maybe the broader forces that are at work just based on kind of the makeup of our ministry. Uh, Take a step back, get that perspective, and now we're able to maybe make
2: some more informed decisions Yeah, I fully agree. This is, again, the reason I had you on because I think these are important things to look at. Let's take a look at number five. It shifts the emphasis. Again, number five being the fifth point that you pulled out of this this particular report. Uh, Number five, churches of 100 or fewer spent the least on staffing costs and gave the highest percentage of their budgets in support of missions and charity. My guess is that this is gonna feel counterintuitive to some people because if you've got a tiny little church There are some churches out there that probably be spending almost all of their funds just just to be able to afford a pastor. And so they got almost nothing left over even to take care of the building, let alone give to missions. And the bigger churches that have all this money coming in, yes, they've got multiple staff, but they're going to be able to spend a smaller amount on their staff because of the heft of their giving and because of their size. But in fact, the small churches are actually spending less on staff and are actually giving more to missions. Did that feel as counterintuitive to you when you read it as it typically feels to me every time I read it, even though I know the stats are proven to be that that way across the board?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Counterintuitive, not what I expected. Now, to be clear, we're talking about proportionate, like percentage of budget. Yeah. So obviously, the bigger churches, the the net volume or the gross volume is going to be greater than the smaller churches. We're talking proportionate yeah. to budget size, and you know, we're all prey to this. Forget church. Think about your own family budget. You know, like oh, once once we make a bit more money, then we could give a bit more money. That that's what we all tend mm. to believe. In reality, it doesn't seem to play out that way, and that's because, like most things, like it's it's a priority thing, it's a value thing, it's a it's a heart thing, not necessarily just dollars and cents. Now, let's do the charitable reading versus non-charitable reading uh, breakdown again. The charitable reading of this. For smaller churches would be, hey, we truly don't care about spending as much money on like these big performative services and the types of things that maybe draw a big crowd. No, no, we're here to dedicate funds towards real on-the-ground ministry, missions. And, And we don't need to spend as much money on hiring additional staff to do things that may or may not contribute to discipleship and fulfilling the mission of the church. You know, we're ready to give that money elsewhere. The non-charitable reading would be, on the one hand, maybe we're not paying our pastors as much as we should be because uh, we are choosing to, you know, hey, we can get by with this. Uh, maybe more churches are bivocational, and that's not a non-charitable or charitable reading. Maybe the pastors are just bivocational. That could be a reason for it, you know. Or or maybe we are uh, not hiring as many staff as we should and relying purely on the volunteer labor of our church And we should be spending money on additional staff. And the one staff member, that single staff member wearing all those hats is like just struggling. And and maybe the burnout at a church like that is going to be higher or the burden on that individual pastor and the effects that come from that and their personal and familial life is going to be uh, greater and that sort of thing. Another non-charitable reading would be to say, well, we're giving to missions and we're not spending money on pastors. So that must mean that like we're doing more ministry work. I think the larger church would say, "Well, no. Like we hire the pastors, and they are doing the work of the ministry, and they are doing the shepherding, and they're doing the pastoral care, and that matters. And and not spending that money, that comes at a detriment. Why are we, you know, sending that money elsewhere to you know a third party uh, nonprofit when we could be doing that ministry directly in our own church?" Uh, and so again. What's happening in your unique context? Less important figuring out like broadly what's happening across all churches because it's going to vary greatly, but understanding the tendencies and the broad data that what does that mean for your specific church?
2: Yeah, I I love your approach to this because too often we just read the stat and we think the stat tells us the story and the stat does not tell us the story. There's a story behind the stats. And the stats can point to the story. They can give us color on the story. They can get, help us to look in places that we might not otherwise look. But the stats on their own do not give us the full picture of whether or not we're dealing with health or ill health even. We've got to look a little more deeply into it. For the small church pastor, I think there is some encouragement in what we've been reading so far that there are these tendencies towards greater giving, towards greater volunteering, towards greater mission support and charity, towards uh, and I was going to say towards less staffing, for the average small church pastor, they may go, I know they don't pay me enough. And that's what that's what's behind that, too. But I think there's obviously there's some real positives here. Let's move into a couple others, because it it starts to shift the tone a little bit, um, not towards the negative. But first of all, I think towards something just neutral, but interesting for us to be aware of. Number six was 70 percent of all churches see 100 people or fewer in weekly attendance. But most people don't go to these churches, 70 percent of church attendees go to churches of 250 or more. So 70% of churches are under 100, but 70% of people go to churches of 250 or more, which is a stat that I have seen consistently across the board. So you've got a lot of small places, but more people go to big places. Is that fairly fairly universal in in, in what you've seen?
1: Well, I think first understanding this stat can be a bit difficult because it's the same okay. figure kind of like almost in in reverse. Yeah. And so you did a good job articulating it. You know, 70% of churches are under right. 100, 70% of church attendees go to exactly. churches of 250 or more. So, I mean, you could chalk that up to like simple math. Yes, the bigger churches are bigger. And by virtue of that, more people go to them. But I think what's useful about this specific data point is kind of understanding the behavior of church goers, and what they're choosing to do. Uh, because what we see are, okay, these churches of a hundred or fewer, like there's so many of them, but it seems like the trend is, fewer people are going to them, more people are going to the larger churches. So again, what might the reading on that be the charitable reading is okay, these larger churches have more for kids, they have more for young adults and students, they have more resources for counseling and for spiritual care and, you know, courses on like money management and parenting and, and the, the worship is, you know, more engaging and whatever it might be. The non-charitable reading would be, hey, nobody wants to actually like, you know, be committed to a small community long term and walk through the ups and downs and and what Christian community is meant to be at its best. We're here to just kind of like observe and be a passive spectator, anything to avoid being an active participant. And, And so, again, you know, I think about the, you know, Jesus's words when he's when he says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The takeaway from that being is, okay. The more money you have, the likelier it's going to be that you're going to move away from God. And like so understanding that principle is how we then apply it in our individual lives. And so it's the same thing here. Like these are the broad principles, then how can we use them to better our own individual ministries? And I'll and I'll keep harping on on that because what I don't want anyone listening to do is like take away something from this and be like, "Oh, if we want our church to be uh, you know, better at fulfilling its mission, we need to then Copy what a big church is doing. Like, no, not right. not necessarily. That's not right. the implication here. Uh, but simply understanding your own context, what you're what you're like excelling at currently, and what your weaknesses are currently. Because every church of every size is going to have different things they excel at, different things they're not so great at, based on their personnel, unique DNA. You know the missional uh, specificities of your church compared to another. Uh, and so again, it's about fortifying the weaknesses and then continuing to excel in those strengths.
2: Yeah, yeah. And this data, of course, is a snapshot. What it doesn't say. But what is part of what's behind it is that this is an increasing tendency that over the last 30 to 40 years, over the last generation, there is the big churches are getting bigger and the small churches are typically getting smaller. There, people are gravitating towards the large. I think there's a, a couple fairly benign reasons behind that. One, we've got more people living in cities. And so cities mm. are the places where the big churches are. And you've got more transitory people. When you move a lot, And you know you're going to move and you're going to go to a church. I think people are going to tend to go to a larger church because I think you can habituate yourself into a larger church environment more quickly than you can into a smaller church environment. There's a a relational intimacy in a small church. That even in a healthy small church that invites you in, there's a relational intimacy that if you're only going to be there for a short period of time, it's like, I don't know that I want to fully invest in that yet. So let me go to a big church where I can still get the teaching. I can still get the worship. I can maybe get to know a few folks, but it'll be easier to leave when it's time for me to go. So I think the amount that we're moving and the fact that we're moving to big cities is part of that. Uh, I think there's a whole bunch of other factors as well, but but let's move along from that because there's, there's a bunch more. And I do want to talk some about what you specifically do uh, in your ministry to help small churches too. So I don't want to linger too much on that. The next two actually are fascinatingly not about size. They're the only two that aren't size specific in the 10 that you uh, laid out, but they are about uh, diversity, specifically a uh, racial diversity. So number seven, in the year 2000, just 12% of churches were multiracial. Today it's 25%. That's one of the big benefits of this being a 20-year study, right? Number eight, the diversity of a religious community strengthens it diversity correlates to increased growth, spiritual vitality, and a clearer sense of mission and purpose in these churches. And that second one, while it sounds like it's an opinion, it's actually based on the research. So let's talk through some of that diversity. And it's that, to me, first of all, is huge good news. We've doubled the number of, doubled the percentage of multiracial churches, and we're seeing, and I, I think going to continue to read the benefits of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it reminds me of, uh, there's this thing that I remember happened in Toronto growing up, and it was called Heaven's Rehearsal. I don't know if you remember this at all.
2: That was after I after we left. You're a little younger than me, so
1: <laughs> it was like 2000 and, 2008 or something. So I'm in high school. It was this like massive effort where they wanted to have a, a Christian of every single nationality at this giant worship event that was held at like the baseball stadium mm-hmm. or you know the
2: basketball arena. And, and for those and for those who aren't aware of Toronto, Toronto was one of the most cooperatively multiracial cities in the world. So this is like prime spot for something like this to happen. So go ahead, yeah.
1: That's correct. Yeah. And the idea is like, Hey, once we get to heaven, we're not going to be looking at everyone around us and seeing like, you know, the same skin color and the same, you know, language. Like, wait, what do you think about heaven? Right. We think about like, you know, every creed and every tongue. And it was like, that's what makes it beautiful. And so I think if you know people are hearing this, they're like, why is increased diversity like a, a good thing? Well, there's the clear takeaways in this in this data, but also because like that is reflective of what heaven is going to look like. There's going to be a lot of people that don't look like us and sound like us. And that's what's truly amazing about the Christian faith is that it's, you know, all people of all creeds and all tongues. And I also think that it's it's worth noting. The great thing about diversity is that when you learn from people that are not like you, you get a more full picture of the human experience. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why we see in these churches a greater willingness to change, an increased in like spiritual vitality. Uh, Because like when you learn from people that are not like you, you kind of get like, it's like when you travel and you realize like how small you are in the world and it like bears this like spiritual fruit of like humility and, and empathy and compassion towards the world around you because you realize like, I'm not at the center of the universe and and mm. all of these things can also happen when you you know walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and they have a different upbringing and a different familial background a different traditions and different way of talking and you're like but we still subscribe to the same faith we're still clinging to the yeah. same Jesus like wow that's special
2: yeah especially uh for for Christians i just recently preached at my church the christian religion is the only one that is not pretty narrowly if not exclusively focused to a particular ethnic group or to a particular geographical region if you take a look at almost any other religious faith they have like a 90 hyper focus on a particular place and people but christians are of every place and of every people all around the world And even if you go back in the ancient religions, you know, the Greek religions were for the Greek, the Roman religions were for the Romans, the Babylonians, the Nordic, Mm. right? And you can identify them by these locations and by these people. But, you know, Christianity is for everyone, for everywhere, because truth tends to do that. So this, this multiracial thing is one of the strengths of the church. And the one thing you did forget to mention that I've got to bring up, when you have racial diversity, the food. Oh, the food is so great. So there's so many positives. I just had to throw that one in because every time I go to a place where there's multiracial, it's like, oh, we're going to eat well today.
1: That's true. <laughs> my, uh, my dad got married this past weekend and uh, my mom passed away like five years ago. So he he remarried this uh, wonderful Chinese woman. and. Yeah. Half of the wedding is Chinese and her family and half is, you know, mm. you know, Caucasian, my family. And uh, let me tell you, the Chinese contributed cuisine was superior.
2: <laughs> I, I can absolutely imagine. I believe that completely. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com slash support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there.
2: Let's go to number nine, which starts getting into the core of what you're all about. So I'm going to go through it quickly because we're going to spend a little bit of time in the back half of this, and we'll spend some time in the bonus content on that as well. But number nine is a larger church correlates to a greater willingness to change, a clearer sense of mission and purpose, and increased use of technology. I mean, we could spend the entire podcast on just those three things. Willingness to change, clear mission and purpose, and increased use of technology technology. So since we'll talk about the tech stuff in the subscriber content, let's take a look at why do you think the larger churches have a greater willingness to change and a clearer sense of mission and purpose?
1: Right. So we kicked off talking about statistics that maybe look like smaller churches are fulfilling certain parts of like a a church's role. Well, now it looks like these are some things that the larger churches are excelling at. I mean, if you think about a small church, and we've all been in small churches like this, like what's maybe one of those weaknesses you go in and it feels like it's this like insider club that an outsider does not feel welcome in. And that's just what happens in smaller groups, because the smaller a group is, the more exclusive it's going to become. And again, mm-hmm. that's understanding just the like the bottom line of what smaller groups are perhaps prone to. And so then what that can kind of dovetail into is a church that's like, hey, we've always done it this way. And the method of doing church has become the mission itself. And one of the things that we always say at our, you know, in our content is mission over method, meaning there might be a stylistic preference to the way that we do things that should never take precedent over the mission of the church. If there's a superior way of fulfilling the mission, we should put aside our you know, methodological preferences and you know, embrace whatever that missional better option is. And so the smaller church, maybe they kind of become really insider focused and and we do it this way and we're not going to change it because we've always done it this way to the detriment of the mission of the church. Whereas a larger church, I think when you're managing and leading a group of that size, you have to be more willing to embrace change because there are so many different variables that you have to consider. It becomes more difficult to get stuck in one way of doing things. Now, that's not to say it can't happen at larger Mm. churches, but if you imagine a church starting... From inception at zero and then growing to 100 and then growing to 250 and then growing to 750 and then 1500 and and all the way up to, let's say, 10,000, the leaders of those church would have had to reinvent themselves so many times through that process that they would kind of embraced an identity of the church being like, hey, we might have to change because that's the only way we got here in the first place. Whereas if you've led a church of the same size for a very long period, you would only be used to leading that size. It'd be easier to kind of get stuck in the ways of doing things.
2: That is a great way of phrasing it. You're right. The nature of growth requires change. So if we're in a smaller church that has not grown numerically, Change has therefore not necessarily been forced upon us, so we need to be more aware and proactive about change because it's not as automatic for us. I love the way that's phrased. Uh, One of the things that's interesting, though, about the mission and purpose, and it's something I need to read further into this report about, is when it says that bigger churches have a clearer sense of mission and purpose... In the studies and research and conversations I've had previously on this, what I discover is what that usually means is they'll ask like the general sense of the, popu- of the congregation, what's the mission statement? What's the purpose statement? And most small churches don't have one and most big churches do. And I think, in fact, I propose this in my next book that I've just put the manuscript in coming in March, 2024, a little bit of a promo there. What I propose in there is that mission statements don't, create big churches, but big churches need to create mission statements. When you're in a small church and it's relational, you can look around and go, yeah, we know what our purpose is here. Can you state it? No, but we all kind of know it. And they actually do. There is forward motion. They are doing great stuff. But in a big church, because of the size and because of the complexity of so many different meetings in so many different places the mission statement acts as a unifying force to keep this complicated organism on a single track, whereas it's much easier to keep on a single track in a small group, even if you don't have a mission statement that rhymes. So my guess is that there is a greater clarity of mission in big churches and less clarity of mission in small churches. I'm tracking with their stats. There's stuff behind that that I think we need to be a little careful about before we start doing too much with it, which of course has been your point all along. Let's there there are ways of reading these things charitably and not charitably. We need more information.
1: Well and if I can, consider this yeah. example. So like Life Church famously has their uh you know public facing mission statement of like anything short of sin to reach people for the gospel. And I know that because they've said it so many times that it's made its way to me. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. I have friends at that church and, and, you know, we've consulted with them, but I don't work with them, obviously. And so that church says that publicly from the stage, you know, at any one of their campuses, any number of times. And because it's so frequently said, it becomes kind of like the North Star for the people in the congregation. And they begin to say, okay, what is your church all about? It's about this thing. And so... When the church makes a change, when something is done that is different than the preference of an individual person, they're reminded of like why we're doing it. Oh, right, because this is the mission of our church. And now the change is more palatable. Whereas if you're in a smaller church of maybe like, let's say, 100 people or fewer, it's probably less of a need to be proactive, as you said in putting language to that mission because kind of the church is small enough to kind of everyone like, we don't really need to say that. You know, I, I, Some churches say this to me and I understand it. Like, you know, I always want to welcome guests at our church because I know it's important, but like we don't get guests that often. And so if I welcome, them, I welcome them every week, everyone looks around and knows that nobody's here and yet I'm welcoming them. It's like, right. It's <laughs> like, are you doing it before it happens or only when it happens? And, and they kind of become this like self-fulfilling thing. You're in a smaller church. You're not articulating that mission all the time. Then when a change happens that hasn't kind of been set forth as the standard. And if no standard is articulated, then basically people will create a standard in their own mind. And that standard typically becomes the method, the method of doing things that they become familiar with. So now you're challenging the mission in their mind, except the mission in their mind is not the mission, it's the method, but they don't know that because you never set the standard of what the mission was in the first place.
2: Uh, That's a very, very important. I'd never heard it phrased that way. I'm going to need to spend some time with that because I think there's there's a lot in that. Thank you for that. That's really important. I love that. All right, let's get to number 10, and then let's get to some more of the other kind of technical things and kind of the strengths that you have in your particular ministry. Number 10 is, again, on diversity. Larger congregations tend to have a more diverse and representative balance of all races and ages, including more young people, and a smaller percentage of older adults. So before I even get your comment on it, I'm going to propose my take on it. And then we can mm. you can agree with that or take it to pieces, whatever you want to do. <laughs> or likely give me both a charitable and uncharitable reading because uh-huh. I love the way you do that. Okay. So I would say, yes, one church of a thousand is obviously going to be more diverse than a typical church of 50. The mm. nature of numbers does that. But my guess is, if you compare one church of a 1,000 with 20 churches of 50, 20 churches of 50 are probably going to have more diversity than one church of a 1,000. So I think we have to compare. You can't compare a big to a small. I think you've got to compare the same number of people in a big church to the same number of people in a bunch of small churches. And I think you're going to get a more accurate reading that way. And my guess is that that's not... The format that they used for this, so I'll throw that out there to you, and you can bat it back to me.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. My my impulse is like, oh, that's a very interesting way of comparing them. My internal pushback is like, well, you know, when I think about smaller churches, and I don't have the data for this from this report in front of me, it might be in there, it might not be. I'm not certain. Like when I think about smaller churches, the cliche is that smaller aging congregation that is trying to reach out to more younger people. But it's really difficult, because when people go Mm -hmm. to that church, they only see older people that are not like them. And so then how do you kind of break that cycle? Whereas you go out to a larger church, and you see people of all types. And so you're like, hey, there are people that look like me. And there are people that not look like me. Cool. But there are people that look like me. So I can, I can fit in here. And that's just kind of how, you know, human nature tends to uh, evaluate different groups. Now, I don't know if I would expect there to be smaller churches. Oh, this is a smaller church of like just the 20 somethings. And this is the smaller church of the you know middle-aged folks. And this is the smaller church of the seniors. And it's kind of equally distributed. I mean, I think most smaller churches yeah. tend to be older. And so I think there's definitely something to what you're saying. I'm not yeah. sure if it would be equal across the board.
2: Huh? I think you're, the diversity is going to be more along uh, racial and ethnic lines.
1: Ah. Yeah, because
2: I think you're right. You're going to have a lot of primarily older small churches. You're not going to have very many primarily younger small churches. That's just statistically true. Plus, for my small church friends, while I've thrown us a bone positive, let me pull it back a little bit. If indeed you do have 20 churches of 50, you equaling a thousand people, and among that thousand people, there's greater ethnic diversity, the likelihood is That you got white folks in one church and Chinese folks in another church and African-Americans in another church. And so, in fact, it is actually a greater division rather than diversity. Right. And it's actually, I think, contributing to the racial divide in a lot of cases. It isn't necessarily that case. But I think statistically that's probably likely to be proven true. So there's always the give and take, there's the pushback, there's the back and forth. I, I just do that up because I, I'm, I'm very slow to compare a church of 1,000 to a church of 100 or a church of 50 because they're just too different to compare. So I'm always wanting to pool it together and go... 20 churches of 50 compared to one church of a thousand. Typically, that's a better apples to apples comparison. So while in that you're going to have greater diversity, I think you're also going to have greater division.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really fair way of comparing it. And I was coming at it from the perspective of ages and generations and not ethnicity. So it sounds like we were maybe talking about two different things.
2: Yeah. And, and and I think just throwing all of this out there for everybody to hear and to understand, this is the complexity of these things. These stats oh, yeah. are not simple, and what they mean are not simple. And this just gives you some idea in this back and forth conversation of the kinds of things we need to consider when we read these reports from this point on. But let's move along from that. Great conversation on that. We could go on forever. But I want to spend a little bit of time before we uh, wrap up to talking about what you do. You, you have a ministry called Pro Church Tools, And your tagline is helping churches navigate the biggest communication shift in the last 500 years. So my first question is, what is the biggest communication shift in the last 500 years? And what's Pro Church Tools doing about it?
1: (laughs) Right. So the one 500 years ago was the uh, advent of the printing press. And what yeah. was amazing about that was that it gave everyone access to the scriptures, uh, Lay people, as long as you could read. No longer was it reserved for just the priests to kind of like say, hey, here's what the Bible says and what it means. And here's what you need to know. And what was the fallout of that technological shift? The Reformation. Uh, Everyone got access to the scriptures and suddenly folks were like, oh, there are some things happening in the church that maybe we don't think is on the level. And there were a lot of people that were resistant to that change uh, because they did not think Christians at the time, we should give the average person the Bible. Like they won't be able to understand what's in there. They, They won't be able to actually apply that in healthy ways. Like that needs to be reserved for the clergy. So we're going through a similar technological shift now. Uh, the removal of gatekeepers, similarly to the printing press, and that is, yep. you know, the internet and digital media. You know, Carl and I, despite you know being born in the same country, are interacting right now because of a Twitter thread that I posted, and then you know Carl was tagged on it. He comes across it, and now here we are talking face to face, you know, over Zoom, and you know, for my part, I went to school to be a youth pastor, I had my degree in youth ministry and theology. And I started in, you know, around the turn of the 2010s, a, a podcast and a YouTube channel and a blog, basically teaching churches about embracing digital media, like, hey, here's how you can set up your Facebook page, you know, in 2012, that's what we were talking about. And, and and here's how to use a camera to make videos in your church, you know, telling stories of life change and shooting video announcements and welcome videos for people checking out your church. And hey, you probably need a website. You know, it's important. Responsive design and talking about how websites should look good on phones in 2014. And, you know, that was a big change. And so and you know, here we are looking at um, you know Apple's announcement last week. Oh, wearables! Is this the time where AR and, and VR in ways that are more mainstream than uh, you know niche? And so we're still in this big change. It's shifting so often. Uh, yesterday. I drove to the mall with my wife. I went and got her a birthday gift. And uh, I live in, you know, near Toronto. Toronto has a lot of highways. And I think we had to go on seven different highways to go from my house to the mall yesterday. And I remembered road tripping with my dad as a kid. And he'd have, you know, 27 pages of MapQuest printed out. And I'd be in the front seat being like, okay, exit 75, you know, take it here to the right. And, And nowadays I can have a GPS that's kind of dynamically sending me where I need to go based on live traffic reports. Like Google Maps came out in 2005. That's just one tiny area of our lives that will never be the same. Like imagine not having live data on how bad the traffic is between here and wherever you're trying to get like, but for the history of humankind that we had vehicles, that was how things were. And so things are changing at a very rapid rate and it can be daunting. It can be scary. A lot of new things are harmful. But what I also know is that the ability to take the good news of Jesus and share it with people is now more accessible and more predictable than ever before, and, and that's a good thing. And so we can embrace that for all the good that it is.
2: Yeah. What What would be your response to the to the small church pastor who's sitting there and hearing this and going, "Okay, all good for you. You're young. You're you're a digital native or pretty close to digital. Oh, well, yeah, you're a digital native, and you've got a grasp on this. And you know, big churches have a tech team behind them. I'd like to embrace these changes, but I'm barely handling what I've got. What are a couple encouragements and a couple early steps that uh, small church pastors who are particularly if they're a solo pastor can take to begin to move towards this in ways that are not threatening and not overwhelming?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, you know, controlling your attitude towards it. Um, TikTok came out three years ago, and TikTok is not a social platform made for my generation. It's made for Gen Z. I'm a millennial first time I opened TikTok, when I realized, okay, this is probably going to be quite big, I remember feeling like, okay, this is a complete foreign environment that I have had. I have no idea what's going on. All of the application nuances and the icons and the environment is completely different than any other
2: social. Now popular. you know how us boomers feel. There you Precisely. go.
1: Precisely. <laughs> and it would have been easier for me than probably, you know, an older person. I'm not going to say it's apples tablets just because I have some experience with it. But I remember the impulse to be like, you know what, I don't need to do this. Like Instagram's still fine. Like what? And then I was like, no, no, no. Okay. Now you're doing what you said you did not want to do Uh, because it's just natural. The older we get and the more that we've done ministry for an extended period of time, the less likely we are to see something new and be like, I need that Uh, Mm -hmm. because like, no, I've, I've done ministry this far and I've done it for this long and Hey, it's gone pretty well. And now you're saying I need to change. Like that's a big ask. I always sympathize with that again, mission over method. So when I was approaching TikTok, I was like, no, I'm quite confident. This is going to be a massive platform. And so The mission of my organization says this, forget about the method and what my preferences are. I need to stick to my mission. And so I think that's always the attitude that we need to have. It's like, okay, it's it's frustrating the pace of change, but the mission would dictate this. And I am a servant of the mission, not my own stylistic preferences and that sort of thing. The other encouraging thing, because the changing of your attitude is not especially encouraging, I will admit, uh, (laughs) is that. Tech is now more accessible than ever. And education on the tech is more accessible than ever. Where did I learn these things? YouTube University, right? You Mm -hmm. just fire up a search engine and you type it in and I'm learning these things. Uh, You know, you at the beginning of this conversation, Carl said that, you know, you came across my content and yes, Twitter has its own uh, downsides and all social platforms do, but you came across my content, which was cool because we didn't know each other, but you were recommended that. And all of the new parts of social media at their best are introducing us to things that are awesome that we otherwise never would have come across. And that's really, really cool. You know, my social feeds, whether it be home design or fitness or fragrances or fashion or, you know, fishing, like insert your specific uh, recreational proclivity, the things that you enjoy or your professional pursuits. There are people that you would be able to learn from and enjoy listening and watching what they're up to. And now we have access to those things. We don't simply have access through television and through the newspaper. You know, there are brilliant individuals that we now have access to simply because of the internet. And that's a good thing. Back when I was learning cameras, I published 40 videos on YouTube. Here's how to use a camera church, a, a yep. DSLR camera. Here's how to use it. I don't even have to do that anymore with a pastor for the first time. I can say, pick up your phone because the camera yeah. in your phone is now superior than the camera that I taught people to use and use for the first time 10 years ago. And yeah. it's all on auto. So you don't have to worry about the uh, the, the exposure triangle pastor and aperture and shutter speed and ISO. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. Just point it in your general direction and you're good. And now you can just focus on teaching. And that's what every senior and preaching lead pastor has done and, and are comfortable doing, storytelling. Maybe you do it from the pulpit, expository, you do it from the pulpit. Now you can just do it from, instead of a pulpit, a phone. Same exact thing, just a different medium.
2: Yeah, it's huge. Uh, We just uh, had the interview with Sally Guillory, who wrote a book about YouTube for churches. It's episode uh, 49, if anybody wants to go back and listen to that, because she has a lot of great tips on that. But yeah, you're right. Like YouTube University, uh, YouTube has become a verb, uh, just like Google has become a verb. You Google it, you YouTube it. Google it means to find more information. YouTube means to figure out how to do something. (laughs) <laughs> that's how those, those are used as verbs. One of the things when I went to your YouTube channel, the, the first uh, video that pops up is the introductory video, at least at now as we're talking, I'm not sure how how much that'll be updated by the time this comes out, but it's about the rise of vertical video which first of all, always makes me cringe because the whole idea of holding your phone up and down rather than sideways is just against my nature. Somehow I believe it's against nature itself, but nevertheless, it's just something I'm going to have to deal with. Rise of vertical video. But the biggest takeaway in in that presentation to me was that there's this huge shift happening in social media where all the social media platforms were really separate. If you wanted to create content you had to make it look and even size slightly different for each different platform which i've been doing now for years and in fact it was better to create it that way rather than because i've i've had a program on my like wordpress where do you also want to post this to twitter and uh, instagram at the same time and i've always said no because seo 5 years ago said no that's bad for your seo you want to put it to each place individually but now what you're saying is you create one thing And you can post it to them all at the same time. And in fact, that's better because now social media is not referring you to your friends posts, but it's referring you to stuff that the algorithm is saying you are going to be interested in whether or not you know the person who posted it. As a boomer, have I come even close (laughs) to summarizing the content of, of what you're talking about with the rise of vertical video?
1: Yeah, you nailed it. Social is going through its biggest transformation since it was first invented, effectively. A departure from what we call social graph algorithms to instead discovery algorithms. And I'll define those each briefly. A social graph algorithm was basically everything you knew about social media before the last 12 to 24 months. Meaning the content that you would see when you'd open Facebook or Instagram was primarily Were exclusively dictated by the people you had chosen to follow. So your friends and your family, that's your social graph. Now, because of TikTok, and now following the leader, every other social platform, we're beginning to see the new era of what we call discovery algorithms. And discovery algorithms are recommending content to you in your feed, not based on who you follow necessarily, but more based on your watch habits and what they think you will like based on how much you watch a video, What you have searched for in the past and not at all based on like your friends and what they're posting. The reason that this has happened is because, you know, TikTok popularized it and it was incredibly popular with young people. And because social media is still, you know, a young person's industry, these other social platforms realized Gen Z isn't really spending time on our platforms They're really only spending time with TikTok, which means if we don't find a way to integrate this new type of algorithm into our own platform, we're not going to get the next generation effectively sealing our fate (laughs) because then we'll just not be getting any more new users. What's amazing though, about this new era of social media is that churches now have a tremendous upside in the content they post. So think about it in the inverse. You're now seeing content from folks and accounts that you don't follow. Well, that means you as a creator also have the ability to reach people that don't follow you. Mm. And so what we're seeing with churches is now tremendous upside on their content. And and this is an amazing world we're living in because now that every social platform has embraced vertical video and discovery algorithms, what you were alluding to, a single piece of content can now be reposted or cross-posted to every major platform. Again, that was something I was a faux pas years ago because you needed to change the aspect ratio. You need to consider the unique nuances of each platform. Now you can take a message that you've preached and the video that you likely perhaps have of it because of the pandemic. You can take it, make it into a vertical video of 60 seconds or less and post that to Facebook Reels, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, TikTok and Twitter. And that single sermon that was preached now has the potential to reach thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions. And we get DMs from this all the time from churches being like, hey, I posted one of my social sermons, as we like to call them, and now it got got like 50,000 views. I've I've never reached this many people. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. And then all the good and life change that happens from that, because I can hear people pushing back in their mind. Well, what good is that? Well, if the good news is worth preaching in person to the 100 or 50 or 25 people in the sanctuary, then it's just as worth preaching online to the tens of thousands of people that will see it there, because life change comes through the preaching of the good news.
2: Um, So yeah, this is a huge shift. In fact, we're we're going to move this conversation what are some practical steps that small church pastors solo pastors can take to take advantage of this new way that algorithms are doing it we're going to move that into our bonus content so bonus content is available to any of you who uh, are listening right now all you have to do is subscribe to our free newsletter go to carlvaders.com subscribe and subscribe to our free newsletter you get one email per week on friday that's it i don't inundate you in that email you'll get all the updates of new podcasts new articles any new New information about the new book that I'm writing. It'll all be there. And you will also get a link to the bonus content for all of the bonus content we've created for the last, uh, we started doing this about seven or eight episodes ago. So all the bonus content from any of the episodes you can get there. So just subscribe, carlvaders.com slash subscribe. And we're going to be talking about some very practical Ways that we can respond to this new vertical video and new algorithm way that social media is doing things. But before we let you go from the podcast here, let's take a look at our lightning round questions. All right. Question number one What are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it?
1: I'd say the biggest one, obviously, was brought on by the pandemic with live streaming and online giving and churches embracing that kind of out of need. But more broadly, when I started doing this in 2010, it was just like 20 year olds that were like, I'm the worship pastor. And I'm telling my church, we need a Facebook page. And they won't listen, <laughs> but I'm going to set it up anyway. And I think yep. what I could clearly see is I was like, the the older folks get, the more that this is going to become important. And the people that are 20 now are going to be 30 soon. And they won't be, you know, youth pastors, they'll be associate pastors. And in 10 more years, they'll be the lead pastors. And, and I could kind of see where this was going. And so just the, it used to be the big fight was like, social media, why? And now it's like social media, how? And yeah. and so that's a pretty big change.
2: That's a great way to phrase it. We've gone from social media, why to social media, how that's, that's about as concisely as you're going to be able to put that beautifully done. Lightning All right, second round. one. Yeah, there we go. What free resource, like an app or a website has helped you lately that you would recommend for small church ministry?
1: Yeah, I was just using this this week. It's called Vector Magic and it's VectorMagic.com. If your okay. church has a logo and like you don't know who made it. You don't know how old it is. And it's like an old, tiny little JPEG. And like, if you want to get a transparent background, like logos are meant to be vectors, meaning they can be scaled as big or as small as you want. And without losing resolution. Yeah. Precisely. So you can use them in print, you can use them online. Vector magic. You can just upload your logo and it will retrace and turn it into it. And you don't need a designer. I've been using it this week with some
2: churches oh, doing it. In a, in a oh, pilot project. I, I am going to jump on that right away. Cause I have needed that so many times and you got to find a graphic designer and they got to have enough yes. time and they got to understand what it is you're actually wanting to do and, Oh, wow. Yeah. Vectormagic.com. It's
1: like unlimited for $12 a month. So you wow. can do it for free and it'll show it to you. So you can see, Oh yes, this will work on my logo. And okay. then you can pay the 12 bucks cancel after the
2: first month and you're golden. That's huge. I hadn't heard about that. Is that really new? Cause I haven't heard about that at all. And that sounds, if you go to
1: the website, it's the oldest, nastiest looking website you'll ever see. (laughs) I think AI will be doing this for us automatically pretty soon. Like they can generate stuff. Why can't they automatically turn a logo into a vector? But this, I don't even know, man, this isn't even a responsive website. It's from like, you know, 2004.
2: That's crazy. Cause that that's such a that is a huge tool to be able to use. Ah wow, that yeah, thanks for that one. That's that's amazing. Okay. Third, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received?
1: Yeah, I have it on my chalkboard wall here and on my uh desktop. Most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years.
2: Yeah, yeah. Tell me why that matters to you.
1: I think because as a young person, you want things to happen pretty quickly. And because I haven't lived too many years, you know, at 32, and this was especially, you know, more meaningful or useful, let's say 10 years ago. It's like life is so short, like you don't understand how long time is and how much you can accomplish just with little things consistently over time. And I think what tends to happen is we don't see the change we want fast enough. And then we jump to something else and we jump to a different method and, and what we're doing is we're actually undercutting the entire goal that we're trying to reach because we can't just stick with the right thing for the right amount of time.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Corresponding one to that that I heard recently is we overestimate the value of one sermon and est- underestimate the value of a thousand sermons. You know, people I've had a, people actually ask, "Can you name one single sermon that changed your life?" No. But over the last 40 years of listening to one sermon a week, it has absolutely transformed who I am.
1: Great point. <laughs> it, yeah. is,
2: it has been foundational to my faith. So, it, you know, I can't point to one meal either, but I keep eating. All
1: yeah. right.
2: Um, <laughs> uh, last one. What's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church?
1: Yeah, I mean, we did a, a youth event once and it was like an overnight retreat the meal of choice for like all the boys in our dorm was bologna on icing. Uh, sorry, icing on bologna. So like an all beef <laughs> okay, bologna. Okay,
2: for for non-Canadians, icing in the U.S. is usually called frosting. So you're not talking That's about correct. ice, you're talking about cake frosting.
1: Right, right. Like the okay. Betty Crocker okay. vanilla okay. in a tub. And then we just, you know, <laughs> take a butter knife um, and just baloney. spread that on baloney. Yeah, that was our sweet and savory dessert of choice on that uh, retreat. So I'll never forget that.
2: Yeah, no, I I, I I, wish if if I had, I would probably wish that I could, but I don't know how you ever would already. How do people find you online if they want to follow up in any way?
1: Yeah, we're on every platform. You can just search for my name, Brady Shearer or Pro Church Tools. Uh, if you're into Instagram, if you're into YouTube, TikTok, if you're into podcasts, we've been podcasting for a decade. You know, we're on all these platforms that have been yeah. for a long time. So check us out. And if you want to DM me directly, uh, Instagram is the best place for that. Just at Brady okay. Shearer.
2: Terrific. And we'll put links to all of that, including uh, website, YouTube, um, his recommendations, uh, the report that we've been talking about, all of that will be in the show notes, including the link where you can subscribe so that you can listen to the bonus content that he and I are about to get into. So if you are following us, if you do subscribe to the newsletter, I encourage you to go over to YouTube and check that out as well. Brady, thank you so much. This conversation, I, I didn't know what it would be or where it would go because we have never met before. It was just based on a Twitter feed, but I've, I'm i thrilled with the amount of content and the great stuff that we have and, and uh, with the opportunity to connect you with our audience to the ministry that you do. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, great to be here.
2: I love Brady's heart and passion for the church. It was nice to find out even when I first got online with him that he uh, lives fairly close to where I grew up, uh, just outside of Toronto in a beautiful place called Niagara, Niagara-on-the-Lake Niagara near Niagara Falls in Canada. But more than that, of course, his expertise in technical things and his love for the church was really important to me and I think were a real help to you. Here are some of the takeaways that I got out of it. First of all, while we are often used to seeing the disadvantages of small churches, including those of us who serve small churches, It's also nice to know that we have some advantages in our small church that our big church friends can learn from as well. Specifically, I love that small churches tend to be more generous per capita. We have to hire volunteerism per capita, and we give more to missions per capita than our big church friends do. That's not a bragging point. That's simply the nature of size, that involvement is that deep in a healthy small church. And then finally, my takeaway is that there's always a charitable and an uncharitable way of assessing the stats. The stats themselves don't tell you the story. They don't give you everything you need to know. What looks like a negative stat may not be a negative stat. It really depends on how uh, the attitude we have when we approach it and what we plan to do about it. So don't just take the information and go home thinking you know more. Let's take the information and let's do something about it. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Aiton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.